this morning. My name is Jamie. Uh, if you're new, I am a pastor elder responsible primarily for uh, most Sundays, opening up the scriptures with the church as we gather in this place, and, and we're certainly going to do that this morning. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time, uh, we're this morning relaunching our way back into the book of Acts, back into, meaning that uh, we actually began working our way through this book of the Bible back in the fall. We took a pause for about, I don't know, seven, eight weeks there to dive into the season of Advent. Uh, we had a couple of vision casting Sundays the past two weeks, the first week, uh, Sunday in January, more of a personal kind of vision casting Sunday. Last week was more of a collective call of God's people uh, to engage in uh, significant needs that we see around us as the church. And so as you hear Jason talking, it, it's this both and. It's the sanctity of life both within and then outside of the womb. And how do we engage kind of the both and there? And so you can go back and, and listen to those couple of sermons if you wanna get a taste of some of the vision casting for this year, uh, both individually and collectively for us as a church. But uh, this morning, we're gonna dive back into the book of Acts um, we're gonna pick back up where we left off. If you have no idea of what that means, have no fear, in warp speed fashion, I'm gonna to attempt to catch us up to the best of my ability in just a second. But before we do, we've entitled this series Witnesses. You see that in giant bold font behind me right now as I speak. That, that word witnesses ultimately has a twofold meaning. God has always been pleased to display his glory both to his people and through his people. That you and I are, uh, we're witnesses of God's goodness, glory, and grace as we see him at work in our lives, in the lives of others around us, in the world at large. And at the same time, we're witnesses to God's goodness, glory, and grace as we declare to the world what God is like with our lips and we display to the world what God is like with our very lives much like many of the people we've already encountered and will continue to counter as we work our way through this book of the Bible. The book of Acts is a fascinating book. Um, it was written by Luke just a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. If you're not familiar with Luke, Luke was a doctor who made trips with the apostle Paul, was loyal to Paul in the midst of Paul's imprisonment. Luke was also an accomplished writer, which helps to explain the incredibly refined use of the Greek language. Aside from that, we really don't know a whole lot about Luke. And I think he intended it to be that way. He doesn't record a great deal about himself. He does record a great deal about the triune God. In fact, the books of Luke and Acts make up more content, believe it or not, than all of Paul's letters combined. And they're all about the triune God. They're all about God the Father who sent Jesus Christ the Son who died the death we should have died after living the life we should have lived, who rose from, from the grave, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, is now ruling and reigning as triumphant, exalted high priest and king, and who has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell and empower his people. We see the beauty of the triune God in the book of Acts. Luke's not in it for his own glory. His aim is to point people to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts if you didn't know this, is the sequel to the book of Luke. So this is kind of like season two of the Netflix series. In Acts chapter one, verses one and two, we're told the book of Acts opens with these words. In the first book, that's the uh, Luke's gospel account, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The book of Luke begins uh, with, or, or deals with all that Jesus began to do and teach, Luke tells us. 
So it tells of the birth of Jesus, Luke's gospel account does. The God of the universe stepping out of eternity into time, conceived by the Holy Spirit, thus fully divine, born of the Virgin Mary, fully human. Jesus is the God-man. Luke's gospel account tells of the, the ministry and miracles of Jesus, story after story of Jesus casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, boldly proclaiming himself to be the son of God, the embodiment of truth, the only hope for salvation. Luke's gospel account tells of the life of Jesus, a life without sin, a life lived in perfect submission to the Father, the life that you and I could never live. Luke's gospel account tells of the crucifixion of Jesus, the shameful criminal's death that he died in the place of sinners, the death that you and I as sinners deserve to die as our sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place. Luke's gospel account tells of the resurrection of Jesus, his triumph over the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death, appearing to many who would become his witnesses. And finally, Luke's gospel account tells of the ascension of Jesus, his departure to the Father's right hand where he does in fact sit as exalted high priest and king, awaiting his return to set all things right. Book of Luke deals with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts tells the story of what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension primarily. Another way we could say it, the book of Luke, we read about what Jesus taught and did on earth. In the book of Acts, we read primarily about what Jesus taught and did from heaven. The message of both the book of Luke and the book of Acts is one and the same. God saves lost sinners through his extravagant one-way love, love that we have access to by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, to bring back a quote from part one of this series, he says this, he says, Acts forms the perfect counterpart in contrast to the gospels. In the gospels, the son of man offered his life. In Acts, the son of God offered his power. In the Gospels, we see the original seeds of Christianity. In Acts, we see the continual growth of the church. The Gospels tell us of Christ crucified and risen. Acts speaks of Christ ascended and exalted. The Gospels model the Christian life as lived by the perfect man, that is Jesus. Acts models it as lived out by imperfect men. The book of Acts is incredibly encouraging to those of us who know ourselves to be less than perfect and I include myself most certainly in that category. It's a, it's a declaration that Jesus chose to build his church with the gates of hell, hopeless to stop it, and he's chosen to do so through imperfect people like you and me, empowered by his spirit. It's incredible. The book of Acts, I mentioned this in part one of this series, could really be entitled, the, book of, or the Acts of Jesus Christ Through the Apostles and the Church by the Power of the Holy Spirit. It tells the story of a bunch of ordinary people empowered by the extraordinary spirit of God, turning the world upside down for God's glory. And so we're gonna dive back into this series this morning in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. You can take that with you if you don't own a Bible or you have a translation in your possession currently that's difficult to track with. Let me pray for us. We pray for the same Holy Spirit who moved in the book of Acts to move in our midst even now. God, we are desperate for you. God, it would be so easy to open up a book of the Bible like the book of Acts and to see a very wide historical ditch that's hard to cross. So many things were different about the early church, 
So many things maybe even more inspiring than what is seemingly around us as we see you miraculously do uh, incredible works for your glory, for the joy of masses upon masses of people in various cities. And yet I was reminded this morning even that many of these cities that we read about in the bold subtitles as we read through uh, the book of Acts, um, many of these cities were filled with people who woke up and went to jobs and came home to their friends, to their roommates, to their family members, who dealt with various identity issues, who trusted in false forms of righteousness apart from you, who looked to people and things to deliver them instead of you. And God, in that regard, there's nothing new under the sun. The human heart does what it has always done. And in that, I pray that we would see the mighty work of your spirit in our midst and in our own lives and that we would see that we are a people who have been called to leave this place, mobilized for the sake of the gospel and that in that, your glory is at stake as is our joy because we find our greatest joy when we are aligned and in sync with your heart and your heart beats for religiously and irreligiously but lost people alike in our midst. God, I pray that you would move Holy Spirit in power, the same Holy Spirit that we see in the book of Acts. You're present right now. Unbelievable. We could just stop right there and leave. Mind blown. You're here, and you indwell us. And so I pray that you would stir us, that you would move us, that you would awaken our slumbering minds and hearts this morning. God, I ask this in the name of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ, for your glory. Amen. Up to this point in the book of Acts, here we go, this is where I would normally say previously on Acts. Up to this point in the book of Acts, we're not even halfway through, by the way. We've been given a front row seat to some crazy things, some of the most incredible moments in redemptive history. We've seen the resurrected Jesus walking the earth. We've seen the ascension of Jesus to the Father's right hand. We've seen an outpouring of the Holy Spirit unlike anything the world had ever seen up to that point in human history. We've we sat in on some of the greatest sermons ever preached. We've seen the healing of the sick. We've seen the casting out of demons. We've seen the conversion of thousands upon thousands of souls. We've seen some of the earliest expressions of the New Testament church. In addition, we've seen a number of threats to the church's growth and advancement of the gospel overcome by God's grace. We've seen the threat of persecution from the outside overcome as the apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit stand up to the religious leaders. We've seen the threat of hypocrisy from the inside overcome as evidenced by the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We've seen the threats of division and distraction overcome as the church adapts to new ministry needs with new infrastructure and appointed leaders. We've seen martyrdom overcome as the gospel spreads beyond Jerusalem in the wake of Stephen's stoning. We'll talk about that even this morning. We've seen the power of self-exalting sorcerers overcome as the spirit flexes and shows Simon the magician's powers to be less than impressive. We've seen the gospel rescue the most hard-hearted, religiously lost Jewish priests, and we've seen the gospel rescue irreligiously lost Samaritans caught up in black magic. Luke's gone to, to great lengths, great lengths over the course of just 10 chapters to show us that nothing can keep the gospel from spreading. There is no threat to the church. There is no obstacle to growth that the Holy Spirit cannot overcome. Picking back up where we left off in the fall, 
Peter has just informed the believers in Jerusalem the gospel has reached the Gentiles, a work of God's mercy and grace that leaves them both speechless and amazed. Around that same time, we're told that a church is planted in the city of Antioch, which is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem in what's known as modern-day southeastern Turkey. In the first century, Antioch was the the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world, just behind Rome and Alexandria. It was a booming cosmopolitan city of roughly a half a million people, incredibly diverse, both religiously and ethnically. Popular gods of the day, including Zeus, Apollos, and Poseidon, to name a few. It's in the city of Antioch that, in God's providence, the second key church in the book of Acts would be planted, made up largely of Gentiles, It's a church that, let this blow your mind, would become a home base not only for global missions, but would become the sending church of Paul and Barnabas. We're told in verse 19 of chapter 11, as we pick up the story, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Going back to to Acts chapter seven, just a few chapters ago, Stephen exposed the false security of the religious leaders who were trusting in outward symbols and rituals for right standing with God, and they proceeded to martyr him. And we're told in Acts chapter eight, verse one, in the wake of that martyrdom, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. That the church was no longer able to meet in a concentrated area, forced to scatter, to get smaller, which ended up being a catalyst for the advancement of the gospel as the gospel began to go forth throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. As we get to chapter 11 here, four chapters later and several years later, we see God continuing to work Stephen's martyrdom for good. As many in the city of Antioch, both Jew and Gentile, are evangelized by these scattered Christians, and many believe and turn to the Lord. Here in chapter 11, we see two sides of the same coin. We see the responsibility of the church in evangelism as Jesus is preached, but we also see that the hand of the Lord was with them, without which their efforts would be fruitless. The hand of the Lord symbolizing the invisible God making himself visible in power and might. Three prayers immediately come to mind for me just in these first few verses. Number one, I pray that we would have eyes to see the ways in which God works our painful circumstances for good. And not just the painful circumstances that we've experienced recently, but also things that are a little further back in the rearview mirror. God continues to work Stephen's martyrdom for good years and years later. Some of you have talked about things that have happened in your life and you've been able to connect those dots and it's a beautiful thing to see the evidences presently of things that happened to you earlier in life that were incredibly painful and difficult that out of that, God has brought about significant good, even eternal good. Secondly, I pray that we would be a people zealous for evangelism. It's hard not to talk about that as you work through the book of Acts, that we would, to use the language of verse 20, preach the Lord Jesus everywhere we go, that we would see ourselves as missionaries where we live, where we work, where we play, 
Michael Green, to bring back another quote from part one of this series in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, he says, as early as Acts chapter eight, we find that it is not the apostles, but the quote unquote amateur missionaries, those evicted from Jerusalem as a result of the persecution which followed Stephen's martyrdom, who took the gospel with them everywhere they went. It was they who traveled along the coastal plain to Phoenicia, over the sea to Cyprus, or struck up north to Antioch. They were evangelists just as much as the apostles were. Indeed, it was they who took two revolutionary steps of preaching to Greeks who had no connection with Judaism and then with launching the Gentile mission from Antioch, the very city that we look at this morning. He goes on to say, it was an unselfconscious effort. They were scattered from their base in Jerusalem and they went everywhere spreading the good news which had brought joy, release, and a new life to themselves. This must often have been not formal preaching but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and in wine shops, on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel, he says. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say that sort of thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously and the movement spread. Never know, never know the impact of a single act of evangelism. Little did those who share the gospel in Antioch know the impact it would have to the end of the earth, to use Jesus' language going back to chapter one, verse eight. Thirdly, I pray that the invisible God would make himself visible in power in our church and in our communities that those looking in couldn't help but say, the hand of the Lord is with them. Visible, he's visible in power and might among them as they gather and then as they scatter, empowering and indwelling them by his spirit. God does an incredible work in the city of Antioch, a key city in the westward expansion of the gospel to Rome, to the end of the earth. So that we're told in verse 24, the report of this came to the years of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, we're told he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast, steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. And a great many people, we're told, were added to the Lord. That similar to the sending of Peter and John to validate the gospel reaching the Samaritans back in chapter eight, here the Jerusalem church sends Barnabas to Antioch to validate the gospel reaching the people there. We're told that Barnabas was a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, which is not a detail to be overlooked. It's exactly how Stephen is described back in chapter six, Luke's subtle way and God's subtle way of making clear that even martyrdom cannot and will not stop this mighty redemptive work of God. It's essentially next man up full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, just like Stephen, enter Barnabas. Barnabas was a, a native of Cyprus, we're told, the very area from which some of the missionaries to Antioch had come, making him a perfect candidate to go and see what God was up to in that city. And what does he see when he arrives? The grace of God, which makes him glad. That's good for my soul. I don't know about you. We're talking about a bunch of new Christians would have been really easy to see their lack of theological maturity, would have been really easy to see the lengthy road ahead of them in regard to their own sanctification. They're being conformed to the image of Jesus over the course of their lives. But we're told that Barnabas entered the city among the people of God and he saw the grace of God, a city filled with evidences of God's unmerited favor towards sinners. And so another of my prayers is, God, for those of us 
with a disposition toward always seeing what could be better, would you give us eyes to see your grace? Here we also see God continuing to add to their number another of his graces. But notice the language used here. It doesn't say that a great many people were added to the church, but rather that a great many people were added to the Lord. George Smeaton, 19th century Scottish theologian, I try to quote one of those a week around here. Uh, In his book, The Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, he says, it is the believer's relation to Christ that puts him in connection with the church, not his connection with the church that puts him into a saving relation with Christ. This is a big deal, okay? Here in the South, people are constantly connecting themselves to church culture. It's happening all the time. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean because we've connected to church culture that we've been added to the Lord, to use the language of the book of Acts. It's not empty, ritualistic, religious activity and practice that Barnabas sees, but rather it's the grace of God. Anyone, I would say, can add himself or herself to church culture. All you have to do is go on a website, find out when a church gathers and show up. And maybe some of you have even done that this morning. Anyone can add himself or herself to church culture. None of us can add ourselves to the Lord. We're added to the Lord by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And so I've got to ask the question in light of this morning's passage, have you been added to the Lord or have you simply added yourself to church culture? And if that's something that you're wrestling with, that you're not, I'm not even sure. I don't know the, the line and where it's divided there and, and where I find myself, I would love to connect with you and talk with you about that. Just so you know, if that is something that, that you find yourself wrestling with, even in this moment, you're not alone. There are entire church conferences that have been dedicated to cultural Christianity in the American South and how to speak into it and shine the light of the gospel into it, such that it, it's an epidemic in our context. And so rest assured if that's something that you are wrestling with and trying to sort out, am I a Christian or am I just culturally connected to to churchy Christian things? You're in good company and I would love to get time with you and to, to bat that around, to talk about that, to wrestle with that with you because one of our great hopes as a church is to put a dent in that thing that we call cultural Christianity in the American South, to have a greater expression of the true gospel of Jesus Christ in our context. Barnabas shows up overflowing with gladness at the evidences of God's grace, calling these new believers to remain faithful to the Lord, stirring them up to love and good works, to use the language of Hebrews chapter 10. And the church blows up and he realizes that he should write a book. No, that's not what he realizes. He realizes that he's in over his head. Verse 25 tells us, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Barnabas is so overwhelmed with the gospel growth in this church, in this city, that he's desperate. You can just imagine the number of baptisms that he's participated in, the, the new believers classes that he's had to teach through, the launching of dozens of community groups and wondering if the pipeline of leadership is ready for it at this point, the developing of new leaders on the fly, He's overwhelmed, and so he reaches out and he recruits Saul 
who had been sent out by newly, uh, his newly established Christian family to his hometown of Tarsus, where he spent the better part of a decade ministering in that city and area. When you read about um, much of the sufferings that the Apostle Paul went through, most scholars believe that, that it was during the time that he left a few chapters ago in the book of Acts and where we see him here this morning in chapter 11. He's experienced his beatings and, and many other things that, that he went through for the sake of the gospel as Barnabas recruits him. It's fascinating how God uses both of these men in the city of Antioch. You have Barnabas, the empathetic encourager, and Saul, the scholarly theologian. It's a beautiful display of unity and diversity among the leadership of this young church. What what Barnabas does here is really not to be overlooked. It's one of the greatest acts of selflessness in all of the book of Acts. The, the language of Barnabas and Saul, as you see in this chapter, if you look closely, will soon be replaced with the language of Paul and Barnabas, as Barnabas fades into the background of the story. He could have chosen not to bring the Apostle, Apostle Paul back into the story itself. He could have chosen to write a bestseller. Here's how you grow a church overnight. He could have established himself as the central figure in the earliest chapters of the New Testament church, but he's not in it for his own glory. He's in it for the glory of God and the good of the church. And look what happens. These new believers are not only instructed in the faith as they're taught by these two men of God, but apparently the teaching impacts them such that Christ flows both from their lips and their lives, which is why they're given a new nickname, Christians. Similar to how Methodists were so named for their methodical pursuit of holiness. Similar to how Quakers were so named for their trembling at the word of God. David Peterson says in his book, The Acts of the Apostles, they were known as Christ's people because they spoke so often of Christ and were followers of his way. It almost sounds too simplistically good to be true, doesn't it? It's evident that these new believers belong to Jesus. One of those evidences being their sacrificial generosity. Verse 27 goes on to tell us, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Going back to last week, God's generosity and grace in Jesus Christ compels these new believers to give freely Think about this, the the Jews through zealous evangelism brought the gospel to Antioch and now the Gentiles through zealous care for those in need bring material support to Jerusalem. It really is a both and, evangelism and a care for those in need flowing forth from the gospel's work in our lives and hearts. And and here's, here's the thing, it's not that those in Antioch are exempt from the danger themselves. Notice that Agabus foretells of a great famine not only in Judea, but overall the world would have been really easy to justify a little hoarding in that moment rather than giving. We gotta be ready ourselves. We gotta hunker down. They're not only willing to give out of their surplus, they're willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of others, knowing that Jesus was disadvantaged for their sake. And notice that the The donations that are received are sent to the elders in Jerusalem, a sign of solidarity between two incredibly uniquely different Christian communities. You see God at work 
uh, in the lives of many religious lost people in the city of Jerusalem. You see God at work in the lives of, of many irreligiously lost people in the city of Antioch, and yet the gospel compels them to unite with one another. That gospel-centered churches are not competitors, they're actually friends. I don't, I don't know about you, but I find this morning's passage to be a great launching point back into this series. I find it to be incredibly timely. I find it to be incredibly encouraging for two specific reasons. Number one, this morning's passage gives us hope that the light of the gospel truly does shine in the darkest of places. If God's favor, let me say it this way, if God's favor was something to merit, it would have never been experienced in Antioch. Coming back to Kent Hughes, he says this in his commentary. He says, Antioch was most famous for its worship of Daphne, whose temple stood five miles outside town in a laurel grove. Apollo's famous pursuit of Daphne there was reenacted night and day by the men of the city and by the priestesses who were in fact ritual prostitutes. Through the world, he says, the morals of Daphne was a euphemism for depravity. So when you think of moral depravity, in that day, in the first century uh, Greco-Roman world, the city that came to mind for you was the city of Antioch. It was a pagan wasteland of moral laxity, and yet, Hughes goes on to say, I love this. He says, amazingly, it was in this city with all its sensuality and immorality that the disciples were first called Christians. That's the gospel. He goes on to say Antioch was also the birthplace of foreign missions and had the greatest preachers. In the first century, Barnabas, Paul, and Peter. In the second, Ignatius and Theophilus. In the third and fourth, Lucian, Theodore, Chrysostom, and Theodoret. God's light, he says, can shine in the darkest pit. God's flowers can blossom in the most putrid bog. From an epicenter of moral depravity to an epicenter of global missions. To use the language of verse 23, it's here with Barnabas that we see the grace of God. From tax collectors and adulterers to thieves and drunkards, Jesus came for Antioch. From pagans and prostitutes to liars and murderers, Jesus came for Antioch. And oh, by the way, you're Antioch, and so am I. Saved by the wondrous grace of God in Jesus Christ. I hope that this morning's passage gives you a feeling sense of the wonder of God's grace, his rescue plan for you in Christ Jesus. And then secondly, flowing out of that feeling sense of the wonder of God's grace, this morning's passage gives us a vibrant picture of what the church can and should be, a community committed to preaching the Lord Jesus, to talking about Jesus a lot a community whose leaders are not in it for their own glory, but for the glory of God and the good of God's people. A community committed to instruction and discipleship. A community committed to evangelizing the lost. A community committed to caring for those in need, all by God's grace, the hand of the Lord with them. And so my final prayer is to close out this morning's sermon is may God overwhelm us like the church in Antioch, with the grace that we've received in Jesus Christ, such that Christ flows from our lips and our lives so that the most sensible label that people can think, can think to attach to any of us in this place is Christian. Not cultural Christian, 
Christian. 